You're listening to The Diplomats Podcast on Asian geopolitics. As always, I'm your host, Ankit Panda from New York City. I'm editor-at-large at The Diplomat and a senior fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. I'm delighted today to be joined by Abhigyan Reg, The Diplomat's security and defense editor. How are you doing today? I'm fine. Thank you for asking, Ankit. Yeah, it's terrific to have you back. Um, and, uh, you know, today I'm hoping to um, spend some time with you, Abhi, just digging into the U.S.-India relationship. And this is something that, you know, we, we come back to on the podcast a f- fair bit. Uh, it's, a, it's a prominent relationship, one that continues to be on an upward trajectory. But really, I mean, that is what I want to zero in today. Um, a zero in on today is the trajectory. And, and, you know, some of our listeners, especially those who, I guess, have the misfortune to spend as much of their time on Twitter as I do, um, may have recently <laughs> caught wind of a little bit of um, a debate, a discourse, let's say, uh, going on around the... U.S.-India watcher scene. Uh, I don't even know if you can really call it a scene, but, but you know, um, our friends and colleagues have been uh, talking about the notion of illiberalism in India and the implications that that may have on India's foreign relations, and specifically its relationship with the United States. Um, of course, you know, I, I say illiberalism in India, taking that as a premise, but of course there are many who dispute that uh, to begin with. But I think I think it is, you know, fair to say that recent developments, uh, you know, I mean, really going back to a year at least, uh, but but even longer. Um, and of course, uh, you know, just within the last 12 months or 15 months or so, we have everything from India's um, reorganization of Kashmir uh, to the controversy over the Citizenship Amendment Act. Just uh, recently, uh, you know, new developments considering the demolition of the Babri Masjid. Um, and uh, Abhi, as you wrote at The Diplomat recently, the uh, decision by the Modi government to uh, again crack down on Amnesty International. Um, so all of this, I mean, you know, India, um, and, and look, India isn't alone in this. This is a global phenomenon. It's a regional phenomenon in South South Asia. Sure. Uh, democracies around the world are experiencing varying degrees of illiberalism. And of course, I say that from here in New York City, having just witnessed a uh, rather, um, let's say, difficult debate between uh, Joe Biden and Donald Trump. But anyways... The question I have, I mean, I mean, really, you know, what I'm hoping to interrogate uh, over the over the next uh, 20, 30 minutes with you is, you know, is is the thesis and I guess the most prominent, um, I guess the person that really kicked off this recent round of the discourse is my uh, colleague at the Carnegie Endowment, uh, Ashley Tallis, uh, a longtime hand in the U.S.-India relationship uh, on the American side. And Ashley wrote a recent piece uh, for Carnegie and also uh, republished later at the print uh, where he made the case that. You know, India needs to restore its economic momentum and its liberal credentials in order to increase its own clout on the world stage. I mean, is that is that thesis, in your view, apt? And and is India's illiberal slide affecting its foreign relations in an adverse manner? Um, again, the, I, the whole uh, debate, I think, uh, well, there are two aspects to 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 to, to this debate and to to Telus's piece. The first part is uh, India's economic clout, the, or the material base of Indian power, and whether that is growing at a sufficient rate. I, I, I suspect and I'd argue that it is not. And then there is a second part to this, which is that uh, India's slide into uh, illiberalism, majoritarianism, whatever you want to call it, right? So the issue here is, are these two uh, affecting one another? and and Or are these independent uh, independent variables. I would suspect that one of the reasons why we are talking so much about uh, India's slide into in, into majoritarianism is because 
India's material uh, base of power is not growing at a sufficient rate, right? Because imagine a situation where India's economy was growing at 10% um, uh, per year, right? And India was doing its share. India agreed to, I don't know, to fun ops in, 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 in the South China Sea with the United States, which is something that Harry Harris had once raised, um, I don't know, in 2016. So suppose India was doing all of this, India was pulling its own, uh, own weight uh, in the partnership. Would we still be talking about or, or raising concerns about India's slide uh, to, 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 or India's um, move in a certain direction, right? So, so that I think needs to be uh, kept in mind. So, and and I think that's important uh, in, in, to put right uh, right ahead. Yeah. So that's you know I think I think you make an interesting point. I mean you know I mean my own view on this, and I think you know things haven't really changed. I mean, a lot of this stuff. I mean, you could really talk about going back to Modi's initial rise to power, um, or at least um, rise mm -hmm. to the prime minister's office back in 2014 when. You know, a lot of what I find is motivating these discussions today is really a mismatch between expectations and reality, because uh, at least in That's at right. least in the United States, India was always, you know, there was a point in the early 2000s when India and China, you know, the United States welcomed the rise of both India and China nominally. Of course, we're today in 2020 when the United States is in great power competition with China and regards India as an important mm -hmm. partner. But there was a time at which, you know, both of these rising Asian powers were welcomed. But of course, India was you know, it was it was almost an obvious no-brainer to welcome India's rise. I mean, yes, there were bumps in the road, particularly after the nuclear tests in 1998. But the notion that India was this large democracy um, that was that maintained a liberal character, it, it just made it easier for Americans to picture a world in which India was a not only a power but a swing power in the American in the American corner, right? Mm -hmm. And all of this, you know, just to add to this conversation a little bit, I mean, India, um, um, sorry, the United States has never been particularly motivated by the domestic character of its partners if there Absolutely. are sufficient sure. national interests at stake in those relationships, right? We can mm. look at plenty of examples through the Cold War, even today, uh, relationships in the Middle sure. East and, and elsewhere. If, they're, um, if, if partnering with a certain country will suit American national interests, then values uh, are secondary. And I think that's that's fairly... Um, well substantiated, but I think I think your point about you know India's material power is, is is well taken. I mean, although you know where I might differ is that I think that much of this conversation would still be happening. I mean, I guess I guess what's been interesting with uh, for me to observe with the with the Modi government is um, you know you have you have Modi's first term, which um, you primarily see a BJP with an agenda that focuses on. Um, you know, vikas or or or, um, or development, and uh, fall short on, on 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 many important measures of that. And then you have this powerful new mandate in 2019, followed by this, you know, a success of steps. Some, you know, admittedly by the judiciary and not the PMO or 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 the government uh, that that reflect a growing illiberal character. So I think I think I think in many ways we would be talking about this internally as well. But you know, in uh, 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 another point that strikes me as interesting, and you know, Ashley sort of gets to this in his writing on this, um, is in the United States. I mean, the relationship with India always maintained a very strong bipartisan character, and really, it didn't matter if the U.S.-India relationship was being discussed on Capitol Hill uh, with legislators or th through the executive branch. India had bipartisan support, and now that is starting to 
appear less clear that in many ways the U.S.-India relationship is starting to resemble the U.S.-Israel relationship in many ways in which you, you are starting to unfortunately see a much more partisan character, uh, especially in, in, mm-hmm. in the Trump era. What's your sense of, you know, on the Indian side of this equation? I mean, what is your sense of how New Delhi is thinking about the partisan nature of the relationship? I mean, specifically, you know, now that we are in an election year in the United States, is there a concern in India that given this debate that has now grown about illiberalism and potential stormy waters ahead for the U.S.-India relationship, is there a concern that working with a Democratic president in particular, if, if Joe Biden were to be elected, would be would be difficult for India in many ways? See, it, what happened is that, I, I mean, there is, there, again, uh, I, I mean, uh, you talk about the view in New Delhi, it depends on on who you ask. Right, but, uh, even within the ruling party and the and, and the government. So, the official line is this: the official line is, uh, it wouldn't matter for U.S.-India ties uh, if uh, Biden uh, Biden occupies the White House in, in, in January, uh, because uh, bipartisan support, blah blah blah. This is this is the this is the official uh, line, and this is the brave face that uh, that the Modi government is putting forward, despite having uh, despite Mr. Modi having effectively endorsed uh, Trump's re-election uh, in his uh, Houston uh, in the Houston rally last year. So that's the official line. But at the same time, you do see signs that there are concerns. And I'll, I'll, I'll give you one concrete example. So very recently, the overseas friends of the BJP, which uh, the US chapter of the overseas friends of BJP had to had registered uh, under FARA as a foreign agent with the Department of Justice. Now, what were they doing, right? So, so one of the things that they were at one point doing, as as a matter of of of, of their of, of the charter, was trying to correct, and I'm quoting literally from the charter, correct, uh, you know, misrepresentations of India in in the American press. So there was the sense that 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 uh, you know in in certain quarters, uh, such as the New York Times. The coverage of Mr. Modi was not very favorable, and they had to they had to do something about it. Now I know that the BJP has formally asked the uh, the, the overseas friends of uh, of the BJP uh, U.S. chapter not to campaign under the party's name in in the upcoming elections. But the very fact that that this something like this was going on in the background tells me that there is a degree of concern, right? And 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 the concerns uh, would be natural in in many ways because yes, the security dimension of the US India relationship is what drives uh, drives the thing forward, but at the same time, you know, there are different uh, uh, accents on 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 the other other aspects of the relationship, whether that is uh, convergence on, on 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 climate change, or 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 on values, right? And I suspect that if you have uh, a Biden administration, there would be a little little pushback on, on on New Delhi. Maybe the pushback would be a little subtle, but there will be a certain pushback, uh, especially if. If Biden thinks that you know the, the United States needs to reclaim its 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 moral authority and and assert itself and, and push back against what it perceives as authority, so that 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 is there in the background, and I think that remains of some concern. Even though the official line, as I said, is that things are fine, all is well, uh, irrespective of what happens on November third. Right, and. You know, I mean, broadly, the story of U.S.-India relations for 20 years now has been a 
straight line of strategic convergence, um, deepening cooperation across uh, across sectors. I mean, uh, you know, economic issues, security issues, um, strategic um, visions of the future of the regional architecture in the Indo-Pacific. And I, I don't think that that's going to change. I mean, obviously, you know, we haven't mentioned, we haven't really talked about the elephant in the room or the elephant in the Indo-Pacific rather, in, which doesn't have to be India in this case, but is rather China that I'm talking about. <laughs> and of course, um, you know, it is, it is interesting to me that this year, you know, we, uh, much of this debate about illiberalism and, and the U.S.-India relationship is taking place against the backdrop of the most serious crisis in Sino-Indian relations in, in, in several decades. And that, I think, matters because, I mean, ultimately, when it comes to the geopolitical calculation in New Delhi and Washington, um, I think you'll have people that are uncomfortable with the United States lecturing India and Americans, you know, uncomfortable with mm. India's turn towards a liberalism and authoritarianism. But at the end of the day, I think a lot of this strategic convergence is, is going to continue because the two countries just have too much to gain from each other, right? That said, I mean, you know, we can look at, you know, I think I think if you look at the history of, um, or even the present of American alliances around the world, what you do tend to find is that the United States tends to have the closest partnerships and the closest alliances with countries that do tend to be liberal, liberal democracies or, or close to liberal democracies. Um, you know, you look at countries in Western Europe, Japan, South Korea. Um, I mean, these are the places where alliances um, mm. and, you know, here I'm omitting the Trump variable, uh, you know, ignore, sure. ignore everything Trump says about these alliances for a minute. Um, but uh, otherwise, uh, these have tended to be the strongest relationships. And then you have secondary partnerships, um, straight up, you know, dysfunctional um, allies like Turkey, um, and and a and a whole set of um, partners that uh, that do vary. So I think you know it 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 will matter that India is heading in this direction in terms of the friction that will exist within the U.S. India relationship. That it won't be it won't be as easy as it was before to uh, to keep the cart uh, you know mm. moving up up this hill to uh, to keep this uh, strategic convergence going. But just because the two countries will continue to have so much in common uh, that they will, I think still find a way to work together uh it's not it's not going to be you know the end of the u.s india relationship by any means and of course you know and, and there's other actors here too i mean uh you know, we're, we're talking about regional configurations like the quad um that that will also um provide additional ballast to this i'm sorry i interrupted you what were you about to say no so so so, so it just occurred to me that 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 uh, part of uh, you know I've, I've been trying to figure out uh, really why are we seeing, and to just go back to your first question, you know, why are we seeing these increasing uh, fairly vocal calls and not just on, on the part of Ashley, right? You, you have uh, other colleagues of ours who have, who have raised questions uh, around what does India's new security order, as Paul, Paul Stadland uh, put in a War on the Rocks article. So you see a growing chorus of calls on, on this uh, illiberalism business. I suspect, Ankit, to be to be perfectly honest with you, I suspect that there is a degree of buyer's remorse when it comes to Mr. Modi, right? Because if you look at uh, at uh, some of these people, or, or in 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 twenty fourteen, or or some other uh, other other players and important voices in DC in twenty fourteen, they were welcoming Mr. Modi as 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 a as a, as a, as a potentially as a, as a big reformer. As 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 a as a as, as a visionary who drive India forward and therefore drive the U.S. India relationship forward, and now you see that given that Mr. Modi has not 
you know, done what needed to have been done uh, on the economic front or on the hard power front. Uh, there is there's certainly this this kind of sense of dismay. There's a sense that you know ex- that things haven't panned out as as they imagined. But the odd thing here is that Mr. Modi is delivering on what he promised. Right? I mean, look at Kashmir. Look at 370. These have been long-standing BJP demands on the on the electoral uh, uh, manifesto on on the agenda. So he's just giving. I, I mean, he's just delivering what he promised. So, so there is no subterfuge. There is no uh, sort of underhandedness. He's, uh, so what I want to ask and, and understand is that why did so many in, in Washington and also in, 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 in New Delhi expect that a Hindu nationalist, a proud Hindu nationalist who comes to power, who's re-elected with a major mandate, suddenly drop his Hindu nationalism and long-standing demands and chug along the economic growth. Line. So, so th- this is frankly something that, 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 has, that, that has been baffling me for a while now. That's a good question. I mean, you know, um, my immediate answer, you know, just recalling, you know, I was, I was uh, writing about this quite, quite regularly. I was following the Indian election in 2014, reading the coverage here in the United mm. States and elsewhere. I mean, it really seems, uh, you know, when Modi was being covered, uh, a lot of the international press, I mean, of course, you know, there were references to his difficult history. I mean, you know, at one point he didn't get a U.S. visa. There was sure. obviously all the controversy over 2002 Gujarat. Sure. So that was all mentioned in the coverage. But but really, I mean, you know, the the parts of Modi that people chose to focus on, um, particularly in the op-ed space, uh, you know, here in the United States, was on this idea of uh, a bold Indian reformer with, uh, and especially after the election results came in and it became clear that the BJP had a, a, a powerful mandate. Um, the idea was that, you know, Modi is a powerful personality. He had gotten things done in Gujarat. You know, everybody talked about the Gujarat model. And now he would export that to the national level. And there was that language coming from the highest levels of the BJP about, you know, sabka saat, sabka vikas, uh, and a, a development mm. language. So I think it got people really uh, excited and riled up. And, and, you know, I mean, India is, you know, to be fair, I think what every government in India, even even the ones that have wanted to c- carry out structural reform, have learned is that India is, you know, inertia is a powerful force in in, in the Indian bureaucracy in the state. And it That's is, right. it is, you know, mm-hmm. no man, no matter how, how powerful his force of personality is going to overcome that overnight. By contrast, however... I think I think you're absolutely right. I mean, you know, um, something that I say that's maybe a little unpopular, especially with, um, you know, folks who tend to fret about India's illiberal turn is that in many ways, Modi and the BJP, you know, they are not the ones changing India. Rather, India is changing and Modi and, and the BJP are in many ways a sense right. of that that's change right. in many ways. I mean, India has a rising aspirational middle class uh, that wants to not only see the country become more powerful, but unfortunately, you are seeing this surge in majoritarian sentiment that, of course, in a country that is 80% Hindu Mm. is going to result in fertile political ground for a Hindu nationalist government. So that, I think, is the lesson now in 2019 and, and, you know, going forward that I think uh, has, has really quickly, you know, there's been a bit of whiplash. I think the turning point for many folks here was actually uh, November 2016 when Modi announced uh, the demonetization move, and it became 
clear not mm-hmm. not long mm-hmm. after that that this was uh it was certainly bold i mean nobody can nobody can you know hold that against modi that, <laughs> that wasn't bold but it became clear that maybe um you know things weren't going to turn out quite quite the way uh, people hoped and of course you know i think um the september 2016 um surgical strikes and uh certainly balakot i think again in the foreign policy realm uh, spoke to the Indian government's willingness to take bold action, but not necessarily in a way that appeared to be strategically uh, acute, right. at least uh, at least to the preference of many in Washington. Um, but I mean, you know, is there what you know? Let's I mean, you know, to uh, to kind of think through the worst case scenario here. I mean, I think I think this this new um, I mean this summer's crisis in Ladakh, which which you and I discussed a, a few podcasts uh, ago. Mm. I, I, you know, I encourage listeners interested in. Um, of his views on that to uh, listen to that episode if they missed it. But I think this China episode is really, I think, going to have an important effect in keeping the U.S. and India on track and, and together. I mean, there have been consultations on this already. India is starting to, I mean, again, you know, I, I'm, I, I've been doing this long enough to know better, but it looks like India is beginning to at least allow a little bit of the momentum in the quad to, um, you know, really, really take effect. And I say this a few days before sure. a ministerial meeting when we'll learn more about the future of that grouping. But I mean, w- what would it take for all of this to fall apart? I mean, we, you know, we've talked about friction, we've talked about liberalism. What would really have to happen for this to go wrong for India and the United States? What, 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 uh, okay, uh, let's let's talk a little bit about the China part because I, I have I have some I, I think be my guest. Uh, yeah, it's a certain counterintuitive uh, views on on this, uh, and and one is that yes, there is this potential uh, that that this crisis is a turning point for the Quad, for the bilaterals, uh, for trilaterals, everything. But also imagine this, right? India's sort of, you know, careful uh, balancing act between China and the United States uh, is it, uh, it's it's done and dusted for, right? Because uh, I mean, you can't play the China card or a closer entente with China to seek concessions or bargains or, or strategic advantages from the United States anymore, right? Which now means whether New Delhi likes it or not, it has to depend on the United States when the balloon goes up. That gives the United States a very powerful hand, right, in terms of what it can, uh, it can uh, uh, force India to accept, or not, not really force India to accept, rather, or what it can suggest India or, or perhaps even lecture India, right? Would a new administration play that hand, right? Because they would say, listen, you know, you, you can no longer tell us uh, oh, we also have China, and we can uh, we can partner with China as uh, as as well. We we don't need to depend just 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 on you, right? So 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 uh, that gives a uh, you know that that introduces a certain degree degree of uh, degree of complications. But beyond that, I, I and I think I wrote about this I don't know earlier this uh, uh, this week or last week. What I fail to understand is is the following, right? What is at stake for the United States of America in the current crisis. In, in, in that, co- concretely in terms of national interests, in that, let us assume that tomorrow, it's it just, just a wild scenario, right? Tomorrow, India says, fine, we'll live with a shifted line of actual control. We fold, right? How does that change anything for the United States of America? You see what I'm saying? So, 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 so uh, these two things, to my mind, are are, are, are two things that we have to uh, we have to keep in mind 
whenever we talk about the future of uh, India-U.S. relations going forward. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think, you know, speaking for the Trump administration, at least, I mean, it seems like, um, you know, the Trump administration hasn't had a, a particularly difficult time convincing India that China and particularly Chinese ambitions for, um, you know, taking a more prominent role in redesigning Asia's security architecture is something to be taken seriously. India, I think, I mean, especially after after Doklam back in 2017, uh, th there has been a, a significant degree of convergence. I think what the United States really wants out of India and what it has wanted for a very long time is a willingness to go further, do things faster, uh, just, you know, have fewer inhibitions mm. in strategic convergence. And India still quite, you know, quite isn't, um, isn't quite there yet. And, you know, uh, you've been covering recently India's um, multi multilateral hedging in many ways, you know, participating in the Russia-India-China uh, trilateral, the SCO, and all these other institutions that India continues to remain committed to. So I think there is a, a degree of frustration still there. But I think, uh, you know, a Biden administration will, I think, you know, pick things up where where the Trump administration is leaving off in many ways with India, I think. So, but, 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 by, by the way, I mean, you mentioned the Russia-India-China uh, uh, trilateral. I, I just call it a talk shop because that's, that's all that they seem to be doing and nothing comes out of it. But, you know, Russia is something that we should be talking more, more about whenever we think of uh, India-United States relations, right? Because think about it, right? You have uh, a new Biden administration uh, who, who generally not be very predisposed to be nice to Mr. Putin, given what they think transpired in 2016 with, with the election interference and, and, uh, and Hillary Clinton, et cetera, et cetera, right? So under such circumstances, would the Biden administration be, uh, be uh, willing to look the other way as India uh, you know, goes ahead uh, with, with, with receiving the deliveries of, of the S-400 uh, uh, air, uh, air defense batteries. Uh, I think one, one regiment is supposed to arrive next year, uh, that, that is, as far as I can tell. So, or, or even political consultations with, with, with Lavrov and Putin, which, which, which we have seen all through this crisis, by the way. Russia has played a fairly vocal, though understated, role in in trying to resolve this india china india china standoff so how does that how does the russia card uh, you know uh, get in, in in the way or or shape the us india relations that's also something to keep in mind absolutely well abi uh, i suspect you know we'll be back soon enough to talk about new developments in the us india relationship <laughs> i i would love to actually have you back in not too long to talk a little bit more about the quad i think it'll be interesting to revisit that after this second ministerial meeting that's coming up so i hope listeners will stay tuned for that's that right. but uh, as always i want to thank you for uh, coming back on the show it's it, it's very good to have you uh, and yeah you know like i like i think i told our listeners i am having um i am hoping to have you on more frequently as a regular uh, now that you are at the diplomat full time so all right thank you for having me on kit for listeners if you've been a subscriber to the podcast but you haven't yet left us a review we'd really appreciate if you could do that it really helps get the word out about the show and if you haven't yet subscribed please do so we'd uh, we'd love for you to keep up with uh, future coverage on on this podcast finally before we close a quick note from our sponsor this episode of the asia geopolitics podcast is brought to you by diplomat risk intelligence or dri DRI is the Consulting and Analysis Division of The Diplomat, the Asia-Pacific's leading current affairs magazine. Since its launch in 2002, The Diplomat has been dedicated to quality analysis and commentary on events and trends in Asia and around the world, and is now one of the most respected publications covering the region. 
DRI inherits this approach and offers clients in the private, public, and nonprofit sectors worldwide access to an exclusive network of subject matter experts and analysts. Whatever your needs in the wider Asia-Pacific region, DRI can offer the knowledge and expertise necessary to anticipate and manage geopolitical and geoeconomic risks. For more information, please visit dri.thediplomat.com. Thanks a lot for listening, and we'll be back soon with more.